Welcome to the Rent to Retirement Podcast, your resource for passive real estate investing and retirement strategies. If you're new to real estate or planning your financial future, you're in the right place. Join us at renttoretirement.com to find your path to financial freedom and an easy, carefree retirement. Enjoy the show. Hey, Rent to Retires, it's Adam Schrader here with another episode, joined as usual by the founder and CEO of Rent to Retirement, Zach Lee Master. And we are joined today by Chad Zdudnik. He is the CEO of CSQ Properties. Chad, thanks for joining us today. Sounds good, guys. Thanks for having me on board. Absolutely. So let's tell people we always like to start at the beginning because everybody has to start somewhere and a lot of people are scared to start. Um, so tell us a little bit about how you got into real estate and a little bit about your first deal. Sure. So I, I started out in uh, construction maybe 25 years ago now or so. It's been a while. Uh, I was in construction and uh, civil engineering, uh, focusing on structural engineering. Technically started out uh, as a rocket scientist working for Rocketdyne on the space shuttle main engines. I did that for seven years and then uh, started a, a business with my brother, um, which was a, a lighting business, kind of very small startup. Uh, <laughs> we eventually grew that over 15 years to be about 75 employees in three different warehouses. And then in uh, 2018, uh, he bought me out and I went into real estate full time. Uh, my first investment was a little bit before that um, uh, in 2015. I was telling Adam I I bought um, a building from my dad. So so my grandpa built a medical building in 1952. My dad bought it from him in 1986, and then I bought it from my dad in 2015. So it's been in the family since the 50s. I still own and and actually manage that building today. It's a 10 unit medical building, um, and so that yeah that was my my first investment project. <laughs> so I have to ask, were rockets just too boring? It was awesome. I, I really loved doing it. Um, it. Yeah, it was an amazing experience. I got to work with a, a bunch of really brilliant people. Um, but truth be told, I, I'm, I've always been an entrepreneur at heart. And uh, so it was kind of tough working in a bureaucracy like that. Uh, so although the work was really exciting and I got to go to different space flight centers, I was I was presenting to NASA on a regular basis, interacting with the astronauts, like all that was really cool. Uh, but I just I, I'm an entrepreneur, so I really wanted to do my own thing. And uh, now with CSQ Properties, I think is probably this my my eighth business. I've either founded or helped found uh, eight businesses now. You have a very interesting uh, storyline and, and background, Chad, and I could certainly relate to the the bureaucracy aspect. I mean, I was in the, the military for, for many years and it doesn't get yeah. any more bureaucratic than that. Um, but it's, it really is. It, I think it's tough for people that have that like entrepreneurial mindset to be just in a position of always being told what to do. And then when you have something that makes sense to do, you can't even do it. Uh, right. <laughs> so um, it is, it is just a, a tough, um, you know, being reliant on the government to decide your fate. But um, in retirement, um, you know, comes into that. But let's talk about your, your journey a little bit, because you went from rocket scientist to entrepreneur, growing and scaling a large business, exit, and then real estate investor. And your first real estate um, deal was this, uh, this large commercial property that had been in your family, and you kind of were thrown immediately into that or jumped immediately into that. Uh, was there any other, was there any other real estate Throughout, or is that literally the first real estate deal? Was was that first one? I mean, I, I had bought uh, two houses before that um, just for myself. So, so this was my first investment property was that that medical building. But I'll tell you what's interesting is, and especially in, in my line of work, when I was doing the lighting business, we worked with a lot of like really high end clients, very wealthy clients. And I, I noticed a lot of them had made money in real estate. And, and I think anecdotally, we've all seen that. We've all kind of met people that have been successful in real estate, you know, most of them in it for a long period of time, right? There's not a lot, a lot of overnight successes in real estate. And when I, when I saw that, I've, I always wanted, I, I say get back into real estate because I was in construction before that. I got my contractor's license. I, I've done a lot of construction um, but that was more like on the transactional side, if you will, right? It wasn't any investment. So I'd always wanted to get into real estate as an investment, uh, as an investor. 
And uh, when I bought that first building in 2015, um, I got a little taste of it, but it really wasn't, I didn't have enough time to really grow a portfolio um, like, like I have today. So, so that's what I really wanted to do full time. I was tired of being on the sidelines and watching all these people make money over time and a lot of it becoming passive over time. Right. I, I mean, I know all three of us here were very active, but we also have our own like passive portfolios. Right. And, and to me, that's really where I want to grow into is building a passive portfolio for myself. And I'm also working on doing that for my investors. Yeah, that's a huge, I think the big, and, and you answered my question um, where I was going with this is like, what, 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 like, what's the why? What's the transition from what you've previously done in multiple capacities to, to real estate? Uh, and it, it sounds like one, you saw that that's where a lot of people that had wealth built it in, in that um, it was interesting to you. And then also um, maybe a little bit of a, a lifestyle um, type of creation where you can, I mean, I think that's what everyone really ultimately wants is like, Hey, I want to have, there's not, there's not, I, I would say in our interactions with, with many different investors at different levels, most people are not saying, Hey, I want to get filthy rich. They're just saying, Hey, I want to create a lifestyle uh, mm -hmm. where I can live off this income and spend my time with the people that I want to, and that I love, uh, and also grow my net worth and have a legacy to leave but it's really about the lifestyle aspect of it. And I truly believe that real estate is the most predictable path to get there. We've heard the statistics like 90% of people of millionaires made their money through real estate. And I think a hundred percent of people that are um, multimillionaires own some level of real estate. I mean, we just all sorts of stats out there about that. Can't but I save think, your way to retirement, all those things. Yeah. I mean, real estate is a predictable path. I mean, if you want to be a millionaire in real estate, buy a million dollars of real estate and just wait, but there are, there are quicker ways. It doesn't happen overnight, but there are certain ways that you can, you know, expedite, expedite your success with that. But am, am I correct in that? Those, those kind of three things, uh, of, of kind of the, why the transition into real estate? Yeah, yes, you are. And, and I'll just expand on that just a little bit. And I think a lot of your audience can probably relate to this. So I've kind of had these three different segments of my career, if you will. And, and my first career, you know, a, a heavy or high W2 income earner, but I, I really didn't have any flexibility, right? I, I literally, <laughs> this will be funny for all the Gen Zers listening. I had, I had, to, I had to show up to work every day. <laughs> I couldn't work from home. What but I had, I had a 7.15 a.m. meeting every single day or five days a week, you know. 7.15 a.m. was a meeting. So, and I was supposed to be there by 7. So, I, I could maybe show up at 7.10. But, like, I had a meeting at 7.15 every day. So, there's very little flexibility in, in that type of job. Um, although it was very exciting. And then fast forward to my next segment when I was, I was a, a business owner and I really learned what it, what it meant to the, the phrase, why would I want to work 40 hours for someone else when I can work 80 for myself? And, and I was doing a ton of hours, right? So I had flexibility, but I was really working a lot. And I know a lot of entrepreneurs can relate to this um, just like working seven days a week, you know, nights, weekends, it doesn't matter. It's all the time. But like if I wanted to take half a day off or whatever or day off, you know, I, I could do that. Right. Because I was my own boss, but I had to work a lot of hours. So then my, my third phase, which I'm hoping the third time's the charm and I really believe it will be, is in real estate. Because now I'm, I'm acquiring these assets that are going to continue to create value and income over time. And it's not going to require a, a lot of work down the road. Right. I mean, I'm working a ton right now as I build up the portfolio but really the idea is to create this passive income stream to where I can have that lifestyle that you were alluding to. And, and through my journey, I've seen like three very distinct different approaches. And I, I really think real estate is going to be the winner. That's kind of funny. You mentioned that you can uh, you know, take the time off as you're an entrepreneur, but sometimes as an entrepreneur, asking the boss for a day off is the hardest thing to do. Um, yeah. so, so true. So, so tell me a little bit, you, you dove into the building, the family building, and then you kept going. How did you learn to start evaluating deals? Because buying something from the family is completely different from going out and just buying a piece of real estate because you've seen what the family's done with it. You've still got, you know, your dad to, you know, ask questions about how did you go about learning to, you know, actually do deals in real estate that are, were not going to put you backwards. They were going to move you forward. 
Yeah, that, that's a good question and a great point because they're totally different, right? I mean, I look back at what my due diligence was when I was buying the the building from my dad and there was like no due diligence, you know. He just, dad, how much do you want? Okay, yeah, we had, we had a banker, you know, we, we, we did get an appraisal done on it, but it's like, it was it was nothing. It was no due diligence. Um, and, and yeah, you're right because it's been in the family forever and it's going to be in the family. So like, you just, you got to figure it out as you go along, right? So that that was a, a totally different animal. But when you start when you start buying investment deals, and probably even more more critically, when you're working with investor money, like that's that's a total totally different like next level type of underwriting and due diligence you have to do. So like for me personally, I uh, I, I studied real estate a lot. I started investing passively. Um, you know, as, as a passive investor in other people's deals and kind of learning that process. Um, but, but really, I would say the two biggest parts are, are underwriting and due diligence. And, and you learn a lot when you just start underwriting deals, right? Like, like even though you're not, you're not really going to, this deal, you're probably not going to buy, let's say deal A, you're not going to buy, but you underwrite it, you learn about it, you see what it sells for. You might even start to follow it by, by staying in touch with the brokers, and, and you can really kind of learn what that underwriting process looked like. And, and underwriting for, for, you know, someone just starting out out there is basically the financial modeling that you do to evaluate an investment property. So there's a ton of assumptions that go into that. There's a lot of due diligence. You, you got to look in the past to see how it's done. And then you make assumptions about what it might do in the future. And you put all that together in a, in a financial model, uh, generally in Excel. And uh, and then you kind of evaluate what the property might do over time, and uh, and you and the, you got to do a lot of homework on that part of it. Um, and I would say those are the two areas where it's it's vastly different when you're working on investment properties and with investor dollars. I want to peel back the onion a little bit, Chad, on on your current business um, because it sounds like like specifically focusing on the the third uh, tier of where you're at with the investment side. So. It sounds you, you acquired this medical building that has been in the family and you have multiple tenants with that. Um, and you kind of jumped into that, but you, you had the, the family there to help you support that. And then you had, um, it sounds like you from there invested passively in, in other people's deals, uh, maybe as an LP or something like this. And then you made the transition to build your current company and start to like be a GP and take on your own projects and underwrite those. Like that's, in my opinion, that's, as you just mentioned, that's where the true learning comes of like, actually evaluating deals same thing on single family like any like knowing the numbers i've invested a lot in in um you know as, a, as an lp uh, i don't currently anymore but what i've found during that process is like i didn't actually learn a lot like um it was more of just a, a passive approach but talk to us if you can be more specific about like that transition of investing in other people's deals to deciding to take on your own. And I want to ask more about your business structure as well. A lot of times we have people that we see in this, this type of business, like so a lot of times there's partnerships, there's an operator and then there's a, a money uh, raiser and uh, you know, those, those two personalities mesh well or things like that. But talk to me about the transition of like for someone that maybe they're interested in investing passively and not thinking about it. Great. But if someone wants to be like learning their underwriting and, and take their business to the next level of evaluating their next deals. Like how did that transition work for you and any advice you have? Yeah. So, so there's a lot there. I think you're a lot of, a lot of questions in that one. Um, but I, I would say uh, to, to learn underwriting, you know, I say, okay, just start underwriting, but um, it, it, there's a lot of different like mastermind groups out there that you can join. Um, I, I've, I've joined like four different mastermind groups to, to learn more. Um, but, but early on, like for me personally, I, I started working with a broker who actually uh, taught a class at UCLA on underwriting. Right. And he happened to be a broker. So like he was a really good person to learn from. Um, he gave me his underwriting models and then I got to use that on different deals I was looking at. And uh, so like he was was kind of like an unofficial mentor that I could talk to, ask questions to. Uh, he had done a lot of investments and um, and I start, just started underwriting deals. Right. I started you know taking a, a model that that was used for another deal and then changing out the numbers as I saw it. Right. 
So I would look at what they call the T12 or, or trailing 12 month numbers and, and swap them out, swap out the numbers, right? So I say, okay, this goes here, this goes there. And then as you're doing that, you can kind of see what it does to the bottom line, right? You, you really want to focus on, on generally NOI, your net operating income. And you can see when you're adjusting the rents and the growth assumptions and your expenses, all this stuff and how it affects NOI. And if you have that tied in, with the debt piece, you know, like a debt service coverage ratio, you can start start to see what your lending might look like. Um, I also talked with a, a ton of lenders and broker loan brokers about what the, the market's looking for, what the appetite is for certain banks to to do different deals, and and you just start talking to people and learning about how these different pieces of that underwriting puzzle come together. And, uh, and when you're doing it on these like, quote unquote, pretend deals, um, that's, that's your practice, right? I've heard, uh, I'm a part of the, the real estate guys, uh, mastermind group. And one of the things they say, like, if you want to get good at underwriting, underwrite deals, if you want to get good at presenting deals, then present deals, right? You just, you just have to get started. Right. And I know this is something that, that you speak to Zach is like, one of the big things is, is you need to take action. And if you're looking to become a, a syndicator or an active investor with, other, you know, with other people's money, like you need to start looking at deals and you need to start playing around with these spreadsheets. I, I'm an engineer, so I'm an Excel junkie anyways. But even for non-Excel junkies, if you just start with a, a spreadsheet and then start swapping out the numbers and seeing how it affects the bottom line, that's really where you start to learn the sensitivity of these different things. Um, and then, of course, you got to have a mentor who's looking over your shoulder, especially when you start getting close to pulling the trigger on something. You got to have someone with experience. It could be a partner. It could be a hired mentor. It could be a mastermind group, somebody. You got to have somebody else there who you're kind of bouncing these ideas off of and they can kind of keep you on the right track. Love that. Now, obviously, you found one of your mentors that sounded like whenever you were in a college class, which sounds like that was after you'd probably gone to college and gotten all your uh, rocket science degrees. But where where do you recommend? Is there any places you recommend people go to look for mentors? Because, you know, there's a lot of real estate groups where a lot of people say things. But let's be honest, most of them are just spouting off stuff they've heard before and haven't actually done it. Have you found any good places that people can go to actually find people who have been there and done that? So, yeah, I think that's a good point, you know, and, and in today's world with so much information out there, it's a little tough to figure out, you know, what's, what's real and what's not, or what's good advice and what's not. Um, you, you learn that over time. So I think, I think if you start like, you know, you can go to like meetup group, meetup groups are a good example, right? And you meet people face to face, you're talking, there's a lot of new people and some seasoned people, but like you can actually get bad advice from some of these places, right? So you, you do have to be careful that just because someone might either look good on the internet or sound good in a presentation, like it doesn't mean that they're always right or that that's the best advice for you. So you always got to kind of look at it with, or you know, have a look at it with a grain of salt um, but by the time you start to talk with a lot of different people, um, and for me, I, I go to a lot of conferences. Um, I went to 18 conferences last year. I think I'll probably do about 14 this year. Um, so you, you talk with a lot of people, you hear from a lot of people, and then over time, you start to kind of develop your own investment philosophy and, and what you think is the best asset for you or the best approach or what you think the market's going to do. Um, and, and over time, you kind of develop what that's going to be for you. Um, it, it takes time, right? I mean, there's a reason why real estate's the best get rich slowly scheme out there, right? It takes time. So you, you, can't, you can't be uh, expecting results the very next day. Um, it, it takes a little bit of time. And then also, so, so we talked about meetups, uh, some online type information conferences. Those are great. Um, but I also think mastermind groups are really helpful. And generally, these are, are paid programs uh, where you're paying to be a part of it. And uh, two things happen when you join a paid mastermind group. One, you're committed because you're paying money, right? So you generally, you want to get the value out of what you're, you're investing your money in. So 
you're going to pay attention to that a little bit more. The other thing that happens is, is generally people that are paying money are more serious. So you're going to be around uh, a different caliber of person when it's a paid mastermind group uh, versus, you know, a meetup where you pay 20 bucks at the door or something like that. You get anybody and everybody who shows up to those things. But if you need to pay, you know, 15, 20, 30 grand a year to be a part of a mastermind group, it's going to be a different level of person that's in there. And, uh, and I've found that, that mastermind groups are a great way to kind of accelerate your learning and, and accelerate your progress uh, through, through real estate. I mean, there's so much I want to speak on <laughs> that and just unpack, but that's like, uh, that's, that's so true, Chad. I'm, I'm glad that you broke that down because like, one, if you're looking at, um, and some people are, I, I think, nervous to get into these masterminds or things like this. I mean, it's a different setting. A mastermind is different, especially in a paid group where you're, you're surrounding yourself with peers. And you do not want to be in the group where you're the most experienced or smartest person in the room. You, you want to be stepping into these groups where you're outside of your comfort zone and you're the one asking the questions. At least that's where you're going to gain the most value, right? Um, but, I mean, it only takes one relationship or uh, one nugget of knowledge that it, that you can go and apply that will earn you that money back, you know, tenfold or whatever over mm -hmm. time. I mean, that's certainly been true for myself and in our business. Um, so many people look at it as just the price tag of entry is like, oh, that's just an expense. Uh, and I, I don't, I don't know. I think it's, I think it's uh, investing in yourself and and networking. This is a people business, and it's a networking business. And man, we've heard we've gained so much. Um, momentum with just the right networks, even sometimes in the deals that we've lost money. We unfortunately had a syndication that went south with a guy that uh, filed bankruptcy that five years later. And, um, you know, we, we lost well into six figures with that. Um, but we, out of that relationship during the bankruptcy process, we met individuals that we ended up earning that money back with, mm -hmm. um, you know, it's just, it's just huge. Um, so, and I want to, I want to just point out the previous point you had too about, um, evaluating deals that you quoted, you know, the real estate guys. And, and I believe you said you're part of one of their masterminds as, as well. But yeah, if, if you're wanting to get good at something investing as well, you, you got to evaluate deals and you got to actually buy deals, right? We have a lot of newer investors that are like, Oh, well, I want to accomplish it. We spend a lot of time talking about their goals and reverse engineering that to say, I want to have $10,000 a month pass passive income. I'm just like, okay, well, how do you get there? Well, if you're buying real estate, you need to have say, 40 doors that will cash flow $250 a month to get $10,000. So how many properties have you bought? How many properties? Oh, well, no, I don't own any. Well, um, how many properties have you made offers on? You know, oh, well, I none, zero. Well, I mean, okay, well, we need to start do taking action, right? Anyway, I could go on and on. I just love what you said. I think most people should rewind that that past you know five minutes and, and listen to what you said, Chad, and let that sink in. That's, that's valuable knowledge. I'm willing to bet that Zach, your syndicator that lost you all that money, even though you made it back, they're still not on your Christmas card list. <laughs> I tried to put some goodwill out there. Well, they, they never were. It was really a bad intention deal. You know, the bad thing is, it's like, uh, and we maybe we can talk about this if Chad wants to or not, of like how to choose the right people to work with and vet deals um, and choose partners. Because unfortunately, over how legislation has changed, like it's become very easy for the average person to get into the money lending space. And sometimes there's people that are lending money for other people and other people's projects. And it's like, well, how are you underwriting projects? And it's like, there's so much to, to look at. But uh, I mean, in that deal, everything went swimmingly for five years. Got our interest payments. Like, you know, we didn't underwrite the deal um, just because it was based on kind of trust. And, you know, the guy, the guy was charismatic. And then five years when we were supposed to exit the deal, come find out they were underwater. Uh, you know, and then they went filed bankruptcy. And then that bankruptcy took four years. And it's like, we got lost like, 90% of our money, you know, and it's like, well, we didn't know that until five years later. So do, do you want to speak to that at all? Um, Chad, just on like, you know, maybe finding good partners, this could be in the money lending space or just partnerships in general. Like, what do you look for when you, how do you know someone's legitimate? This could be a mentor or anything like, you know, how do you vet people? Sure. Uh, yeah. And just before I get in there, I just wanted to, you know, kind of remind people, you know, these are investments, right? It's, they're not, they're not guaranteed returns, um, they're, they're investments and sometimes investments don't work out. Uh, so the idea is that, you know, stay diversified and, um, you know, you try to limit your exposure. There's lots of things you can do, but, but, uh, but they're investments. 
So uh, a big part of what I do with partnerships uh, is, is actually pretty important. And, and I didn't always start out with partnerships. So uh, we talked about my first investment deal as being the medical building, but my first syndication uh, was actually as a solo general partner uh, that I did everything from A to Z on my own, which is pretty rare in this, in this business. Um, and and I, so I, I bought my own deal, had 10 investors, uh, did 100K minimums, and uh, we raised like 1.2 million, bought a 10-unit building here in LA, apartment building, and, and fixed it up and, and hold on to it for monthly income. So it was kind of a rare start. And, and actually, several of my first deals were all at, in that same format as a solo, solo general partner. And then eventually... Um, wanting to diversify a bit more and try to work within more landlord-friendly states because um, I live in Los Angeles, which is not particularly landlord-friendly. Um, but I wanted to diversify out of California. And in order to do that um, and limit my, my risk exposure, I, I wanted to partner with other people. So, and to me, this is, this is like the most important part of, of the investment um, and, and I know you guys deal with this a lot too, right? There's other turnkey providers, right? I mean, there's other people that do what you guys do. But the question is like, like who do you want to partner with or who do you want to invest with? That, that's the, the biggest question. And, and I like the horse track analogy where the, the sponsor or the partner, like they're the jockey, the, the horse is the property and the track is the market, right? They're, the real estate market. So those three components uh, make up real estate. And it's true in real estate where you want to bet on the jockey, you want to bet on the sponsor team uh, or bet, bet on the company that's doing your, your tur turnkey provider investments. Because uh, I'll tell you, if, if you're in real estate long enough and it doesn't take long, you're going to run into problems, right? It doesn't matter how good the deal is on day one. You're going to run into problems. The market's going to change. Things are going to shift. And so the question becomes, how are you going to handle those challenges? And, and that's really where the partnership team or the sponsor comes into play, because how are you going to navigate those rough waters when they happen? And they will happen. So, so for me, I, I put most of my effort into vetting partners and deciding who I'm going to work with, um, because that, you know, I'm a jockey with them, right, on that partnership team. And, and in this example, these partners would be the expert in whatever market I'm going into, right? So, so I need to really make sure that I vet them really well. And, and that takes time, right? I mean, you can do simple stuff like background checks and, and I do that, you know, like local and national background checks, civil, criminal, like that sort of stuff you can do. Um, but, but more importantly, I think is like getting to know the person, following them on their existing deals, hopefully seeing how they handle challenges because I, I really think that's where you find out who people, what people are really made of is during the challenging times. And uh, anyone who went through like 08 or even 2000, if you went through those times, like, like you've got some, some war wounds, right? You've got some scars going through that. You learned a lot. You know, I was navigating a business through that and it's, it, those are tough times and we've got some tough slash interesting times right now with interest rates and some, some people are in trouble right now. So if you have an opportunity to see how those partners react and, and what kind of decisions they're making during that during those time periods, you can really learn a lot about somebody. And, and that's what I was talking about earlier about being a, an LP, a limited partner. Um, so you can invest in other people's deals and, and learn about those partners. And that's also what I do. I invest my money as an LP kind of see what their deals look like, see what their communication flow looks like. And I, I follow it really closely. And then, and then going to these conferences, meeting them, joining mastermind groups with them, and just kind of developing those relationships, um, I think is, is paramount to having a, a successful partnership. You mentioned the market right now. You're, you're operating a lot in the multifamily and in the, the storage world at the moment. Give us a, just a rundown of kind of what you're seeing in those markets right now and kind of how it's changed over the last, um, you know, one to two years. Yeah. So, so it's changed a lot. Um, and, and I actually think in a lot of ways it's changed for the better. Um, you know, look, it was pretty brutal two years ago 
when it was a buying frenzy and, and, you know, as a buyer, you like, you always had to give best and final offers, right? It was always a bidding war. Everything was above asking price. You know, your contingency periods were cut short or eliminated altogether. And, um, and it was pretty tough, pretty, pretty tough. So, so now things have shifted a lot and um, I'd say it's a lot more neutral. I wouldn't necessarily say it's a, a buyer's market, but it's definitely more neutral um, and again, it's really dependent on, on the area and the asset class. So, so people might think of like real estate as like real estate in its entirety. Oh, how's real estate doing? And you could look at some headlines and say, okay, well, he- real estate has dropped 80%. Well, if you're in office or retail in San Francisco, you're right. It's dropped 80%. But if you're in some of the markets, I know you guys are in and that I'm in Southeast, like we're up, we're up this year, Right. Um, you know, I've got, I've got, you know, some of my really good properties in Florida, we're, we're up 15% this year on our rents, like 15 at a minimum. So it, you can't say what real estate is doing in, in general, you, you got to dive into the localities and you got to dive into the asset classes. And I think when you start to do that, you can see where the opportunities are. And I'm a firm believer that there's opportunities in all markets. You just have to kind of find the right deals in the right places, um, to make it happen. So, so we're very active and, and I'll give you a quick like anecdotal, uh, example here. So we've got a deal we're doing in, in Dallas right now, you know, super hot market, uh, multifamily downtown Dallas, right? Hot market. Um, but we found a seller who was on bridge debt and we know bridge debt people are having a really tough time right now in, in the commercial world. And, um, and we were buying this 204 unit apartment building for $500,000 less than they paid for it in 2019. So when you have people that are saying, oh my gosh, I missed the COVID run up, real estate did so great, blah, blah, blah. Well, like you can get into certain deals right now at pre-COVID numbers. And uh, that's just an example of, of being able to buy a deal. I mean, it's a distressed deal because they need to sell because they're on bridge debt. Uh, they're about you know five million under the hole if they try to refinance that right now, and and they just they can't do it so they're selling. And uh, we were able, through my partners right. This is again where it's important to have part, good partners. They got first look at the deal and picked it up before uh, before it went to market. So like like me personally, I'd never have that type of opportunity uh, to buy that because I'm not. I'm not in Dallas. I hadn't bought several deals with this broker. You know, I didn't, I didn't have that, but I've got a great relationship with, with that sponsor who is now a partner of mine and, and we're going in on the deal together. So, uh, so I, I think it's a great time uh, right now in this market, but you do got to be a little bit careful. And, and in particularly, you, you got to really pay attention to your debt because debt is killing deals right now. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. Um, Chad, I, I, and again, this is so many conversations could dovetail off of this, but you know, people are concerned about you know where, where interest rates are right now. It's like, look, uh, in a in the residential space, which is quite different, you know, from a lot of other spaces like commercial. If you can get a thirty year fixed loan and the property cash flows and the numbers make sense underwriting at current interest rates, one of two things are going to happen in the future: one, the house is going to continue to appreciate over time, and rents will go up time after time, and you just keep. You know, and even if interest rates go up, well, great. You will, you've got to have a 30-year fixed loan at a lower interest rate. If interest rates go down, then you refinance. And all of a sudden, your cash flow um, is, is much better. And you've also, you know, created equity through the time period that you've, you've held the asset. So there's literally, if, if the property meets your goals and underwrites, like underwriting makes sense right now, there's no reason not to buy. Because one of those two scenarios is guaranteed to happen. And, you know, and if the property's cash flowing now, but on the commercial side, it's quite different to your point on bridge financing. Like we work a lot with, um, we buy a lot of stabilized assets. We buy turnkey assets, me personally, that are new construction commercial deals, just because we put money, like it's a holding period, again, tax play. But um, we saw, we see a lot of builders right now that, um, yeah, they had variable financing or their five-year term is coming up now, you know, and, mm-hmm. and they were, now their interest rate is doubling and they're going to be underwater. So Definitely some opportunity on that. I want to dive just quickly as we we uh, finish up here, though. I want to talk about self storage because we've we've had a lot of different people talk on different asset classes. I'm interested to hear, and and we've had some people talk on self storage, but give us give us a rundown on self storage. That's one of those unique things that I think is interesting for people to to learn about. 
Um, and one of these things where it's like you kind of have in, in many cases, you're operating a business as well as uh, a, you know, a, a physical real estate um, deal as well. So can you just give us kind of a high level, like how does, how does self-storage work? So I'll start at the very, very top. Uh, you get to deal with boxes instead of tenants. And uh, as, a guy living, as a guy who's been living in Los Angeles, dealing with tenants through COVID, I'll tell you, I'd much rather deal with boxes. Um, it's a huge difference. So, so I'm, I started out as a multifamily guy. I still love multifamily. Um, but I really wanted to get into self storage, uh, to diversify a little bit more in terms of asset class, going back to what we were talked about with real estate being a bunch of different types of asset classes and markets. Self storage is, is very different than multifamily. Um, Self-storage does really well during recessions. If you look back in 08, it was the, the, actually the, the probably the one top or top two best performing real estate asset classes during the recession. So I started to get into uh, self-storage, um, again, as an LP several years ago, uh, but then more actively once I started to see the kind of the the uncertainty on the horizon with respect to real estate and in particular the economy and, and uh, maybe a looming recession. So I wanted to get into self-storage for those reasons. And, um, and looking back at how it performed in 08, it's, it's done great. Um, and, and so that's kind of what, why, why I got started in it. And it's basically, <clears throat> it's basically similar in that it's a commercial property. You still get commercial debt on it. You're still dealing with with tenants, but you don't have tenant laws, right? So they're just storing their stuff there. Um, your eviction processes are, are expedited exponentially. Um, you know, basically, it's thirty to forty five days. Um, easy to do. Easy to do that. Your turnaround times are much faster. You basically throw anything out, anything that's in there, you throw away or have an auction and then you sweep it and you're done. Might so like, you get a TV show out of it, right? Yeah. I mean, anyone who's been in like the turnover world with multifamily and you don't know how the tenant's going to leave it, um, that can be a mess. And there's a lot of uncertainty with that. And, and a lot of those challenges you just don't have with self-storage. So, so that's kind of the, the big picture and why, why we really like self-storage. Uh, one of the things that we do to really try to improve uh, the returns, really like two things. One is requiring tenant insurance, uh, which sounds, sounds kind of basic, but a lot of people don't do it. And it's a great additional income stream. And then the other thing is that we, the bigger, bigger thing is that we automate all these properties. So we buy, <clears throat> we buy these mom and pop type um, properties uh, that have, you know, a, a manager or someone on site who's there, you know, they're, you know, usually a couple people manning the place from like eight to six, six or seven days a week. And, and we automate these, these, um, these properties. So we use smart locks, uh, keyless entry. Uh, we have gate codes, online leasing, like all these things that, that uh, uh, create a, um, an automated experience. Um, do you have any staffing that's... still, like people answering the phones or? Uh, so we do use like um, um, a call center, like like a third party, if you will, call center. So like one call center that manages all our properties. So so that helps a lot. And then we'll also have um, like a roaming um, maintenance guy, if you will. So like we talked about Beaumont outside of Houston, Texas a little earlier. And, um, and we got seven properties there. So we got like one maintenance guy kind of managing the seven properties, helping with the turnovers if we have units uh, turning over. And, um, but besides that, we cut out a lot of staff, um, like several hundred thousand dollars worth of payroll we were able to save on that. And frankly, provide a better experience to, uh, to the users or to the, to the tenants. So you're self-managing those, and then, but really automating the, the aspect of it. And then it sounds like, you know, probably have a call center and just one maintenance guy, right? Is that kind of yep. the, the typical staffing? That's interesting. Super um, lean. The, the other thing too, sorry, sorry, Zach, one more thing to note is like in the multifamily space, it's like probably about 80% now like institutional type investors or operators um, and only maybe 10, uh, 
20% is like mom and pop operator. And there's always, there's always meat on the bone when it's a mom and pop because things are run inefficiently. Right. But my point is in multifamily, there's only about 20% that might be the inefficiently run mom and pop type uh, owners on a self storage is the complete reversed. You only have about 20% institutional investors in the self storage space. Um, and by and large, it's, it's mom and pop type operators now that's shifting because there's a lot more institutional money coming in, but there's a lot of properties out there. Um, just to give people a context, if you added up all the Starbucks, Wendy's, McDonald's, and Dunkin' Donuts, if you add up all those franchises that you see when you're driving, there's more self-storage properties than all of those combined. So like we don't notice self-storage because you just drive right by it. You don't notice it. But but if you think of all the Starbucks, you know, you know there's a lot of Starbucks out there. So there's actually a lot of self-storage out there. Uh, the U.S. is the leading market in the world for self-storage. We love our crap <laughs> and uh, we buy too much of it. And uh, people need a place to store it. And, and when you talk about changing markets, and, and you guys know this when you see it uh, from your renters, if people... In, in tough times are either downsizing or moving into a smaller place to save money, right? They, they, want, they need a place to store their things and uh, they don't want to let go of it. And so if they can get a storage unit for a hundred bucks a month and not have to throw away everything and they say, okay, I'll be able to move back into a bigger place in a year from now or whatever it might be, they'll gladly spend the hundred bucks to save all their stuff. And by the way, if we raise our rent by $15, they're not going to move out because it's only 15 bucks a month. But when you look at your financials and you do that across a portfolio, that's a 15% increase in rents. And that's huge. So that, that's how the numbers really start to make, make sense at scale. And, and right now we've got almost 3000 units uh, of self-storage under management. Did you say you're um, charging? So you said insurance is another value add. Is, is that you offering insurance? Like they're paying so, so, so good question. So we actually will use an insurance company and then we do a, a revenue share with them. It's actually a 50, 50 share on, on the premium. And, and it's not much. I mean, they pay the tenant might pay 10 or 20 bucks a month for insurance. They're getting a benefit, right? Cause they're insured. So that's kind of good. So let's say they pay 20 bucks a month to have tenant insurance. Cause they have to have it. Uh, we would get $10 a month of that. We get a 50, 50 split. And they don't, they don't have to use our, I call it our company, but it's our partner company. They don't have to use our company, but they do have to show proof of insurance. And if they do end up using our company, which about 80% of our, our tenants do, then we get a 50-50 split on the premiums. And the third-party company takes care of all, all, the, um, all the claims and claim filing and whatnot. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know how many people, it just makes sense. I don't know how many people are like, oh, well, I'm going to go out and find my own self-storage insurance company. Like just <laughs> making yeah. it easy. It's for 10 them. bucks, 20 bucks a month. It's like, yeah. And it's competitive. So it really, yeah. 80% will just use what we've got. Some people, oh, my, my uncle's an insurance agent or whatever, but yeah, we, we do most of it. This is all really interesting to me because I, I really, as I've grown my portfolio and we've owned you know, a lot of different properties and a lot of different asset classes. And I kind of reflecting back, it's like, man, um, to your earlier point, I, I mean, I really try to, as we grow and continue to scale, but also just move more into like lifestyle aspect. Like one of the main important things to me is yeah, how automated things can be and how like less, less time, right. How, how little time can I spend on this investment without it crashing down, you know? Um, and that's, uh, that's really important, I think. And so I, I love the idea of the automation and you know, not dealing with tenants. How does, yeah. I guess the last question on self-storage, just I'm curious on how this is um, more personally, because I haven't looked at any commercial loans on self-storage, but how does debt work? You know, um, are they, are they financing based on, based on an income as, as well? I mean, and what is, what is like LTV look like on yep. those and, so it's it's very similar. I mean, it's run as a commercial loan. Um, so yeah, they'll they'll look at your debt coverage service ratios. They'll look at your NOIs. The the biggest difference. So it's it's commercial. It's commercial loans, just like multifamily. Uh, but the biggest difference would be uh, some banks just don't want to do self storage loans for whatever reason. They're just not comfortable with it, or you know, it's a newer bigger asset class or just it's just, like a specialty not, type of yeah, asset. we just looked at a nursing facility and many banks were like don't yes, touch it specialty exactly yep. 
So, so once you've, and there's a lot of banks that do sell storage. I'm just saying some don't, but like once you find the banks that, that do have an appetite for these types of loans, they're basically underwritten this, the same way um, as a normal commercial loan. So that, that part is pretty straightforward. Uh, just as a reference, like this deal, I got a deal I'm doing in Alabama right now. We're at uh, 5.95% uh, for a five-year loan that we're doing. And that's at uh, 65% LTV. So it, it's very straightforward. Um, w- one other thing I did want to mention too, when we talk about tenants versus boxes, uh, and I think this is, I'm sorry, um, uh, ten- yeah, tenants versus boxes. What's really important is you talk about your legislative liability with the government changing the rules on tenant tenant landlord rules. Those are always changing. It doesn't matter what state you're in, they're always changing. And um, so I think there's a little bit of exposure there. Uh, obviously I'm sensitive to it being in California. We have a lot of exposure from a, a landlord perspective, but when you look at your, your tenant rights and self-storage, like there are none, they don't, they don't live there. It, it's stuff. So the, the American politic uh, appetite for changing rules on self-storage it's not the same as what you would have in the multifamily or even single family space for that matter. And, and even at the federal level. So you look at the federal level, like they're, they're initiating the, the tenant bill of rights. You might've heard that they're working on right now. And this is going to be a, a federally rolled out program that they're starting to try to have all the States have some sort of uh, uniformity when it comes to tenant rights. And, uh, and that's just starting to roll out. We don't know how that'll develop over time, but I feel a lot more comfortable having some of my investments and my investor investments in something that's not going to be subjective, subjected to that legislative, legislative liability because you just never know which direction it's going to go. Yeah, definitely. That'll be an uphill battle, I think, in some some states that we invest in. Totally. <laughs> I, look, but, I, I'm, uh... with you. I'm, I'm in those states as well. It will be an uphill battle, but but even like Florida, you know, the um, uh, Orange County had on the ballot rent control, right? And and so so it's on there, and they're trying to shoot it down at the state level. But but even in states like Florida, you could have local issues yeah. that start to cause problems for you. And I know you guys are in South uh, Southwest Florida, but you look at Miami. I mean, Miami could be somewhere where they do start having these local issues. Uh, with respect to real estate that are not landlord friendly. And then how does that grow? Like, you just don't know. So, so for me, I, I like being kind of out of that world uh, a bit, you know, I don't like having all my eggs in the multifamily basket when, when things are always changing. So I, I like to diversify a bit more. Yeah, that's a really good point. But I got to ask Chad, you, you've never had someone, uh, you've never found someone living in one of your, your storage units. You've never <laughs> rolled up the gates and that's a really good surprise. Question. There's, um, I've seen that. I've seen that before. So I don't. Knock, knock on knock on wood. Um, we, you know, we find people outside by the dumpsters, but <laughs> inside the unit, uh, I I haven't found that yet. Last last question for you, and then I'll let Adam finish up here. Um, just on on self storage. Um, I guess you you pointed out some interesting things in terms of value add that we haven't heard before. Would you say that like little things like that, as far as like destaffing? Um, automation and just increasing a little bit with uh, like the, the insurance aspect, like is a little bit of tweaking goes a long way in, in scale economies of scale. But I mean, um, have you, some of these mom and Paul properties that you're buying, have you been able to purchase ones that aren't like super under um, under market rent or things like that, where you don't need to come in and do renovation or you don't need to do like a huge market increase. Have you made, any deals work just by doing a little bit of tweaking that you've that you've just talked about with automation and uh, insurance, or is that in combination to um, you know doing like increasing rents on those or things like that as well? I think there's a lot of options to it, and and it's like anything else. It depends on what kind of returns you're looking for, right? There's lots there's lots of different ways to improve the the NOI for these properties. Um, but let, let me walk you through a quick example because we talked about payroll earlier and I'll, I'll explain why is commercial real estate so great. But um, if you have like in, in this one, this one uh, property, we had a, a, a $300,000 decrease in payroll as a line item. So it was like 370 
and we brought it down to 70 grand. So we had a $300,000 savings on payroll in that example. Now that 300, let's just assume everything else stayed the same, rent stayed the same, occupancy, blah, 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 all the other expenses. If, if that 300 grand could, could presumably drop to the bottom line, right? So our NOI would go up by 300 grand on, on a 5% cap rate deal, which um, we won't go into cap rate. Hopefully people know what that is, but on a 5% cap rate deal, that would be a $6 million increase in value, right? 300,000 divided by 5%, $6 million. Uh, uh, yes, $6 million uh, increase in value just from dropping that off. So you add up all these little things. They actually add up to big numbers depending on where the cap rate's at. That's assuming cap rates are the same exit and entrance and so forth. But, but my point is that the, the value is, is there. Um, so, so yeah, I do think these things add up a lot. Um, you know, there's also <clears throat> marketing. How are you doing the marketing for the properties? Um, like fancy percentage. Yeah. That's a big one. Yeah. You know, mom and pops don't really advertise, right? They put up a sign and that's about it. But like, we're doing SEO, we're doing retargeting Google ad- AdWords. Like our marketing program is pretty sophisticated for a self storage type, uh, operator. Um, but it, it pays dividends for us. Um, so you add up all these little things and these, these are turning out to be really good investments, good cash flowing investments. Love it. All right. Well, Chad, thank you so much for joining us today. Really appreciate it. The website is csqproperties.com. That's csqproperties.com. Um, if you want to give just a, a quick, quick take on kind of, if you want to explain anything else about your company or kind of who your target audience is, love to hear that as well. Sure. Yeah. So, so we work with uh, high W two income earners and uh, business owners. I have a special affinity as for with business owners. I actually wrote a, an ebook called "Why Entrepreneurs Should Invest in Apartment Buildings." Uh, they can get that ebook at csqproperties.com. and uh, also YouTube channel or anywhere else on social, Instagram, Facebook is just at CSQ Properties. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Obviously, he's got the self-storage and the commercial, but if you're looking for single family properties, you can head on over to renttoretirement.com and see what all we have to offer there. That's renttoretirement.com. And I know we've been getting a lot of requests, but people, it's the second half of the year, so you need to read the report now. It's Zach's top 20 markets to invest in in 2023. If you want a copy of this, send it to podcasts at renttoretirement.com. That's podcasts at renttoretirement.com. Really appreciate the time you spent educating yourself today, and we'll talk to you on the next episode.